If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're going to finish up Acts chapter 2 by looking at verses 41 through 47, and you can find it on page 911 in the Bibles there uh, in the pews. Again, if you're here and you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you a Bible, and so the blue and white Bibles that are right there in those pews, please take one of those. We, that's our gift to you for being here with us this morning. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a real interest in photography, and I love photography because I love pictures. Good pictures tell a story. I mean, you've heard the phrase, right? A picture is worth a thousand words. Pictures, good pictures can communicate ideas. They can set moods. They can express feelings. They can, they can describe to us a way of life. I mean, good pictures are amazing. Now, you know, uh, you feel as though you are a part of it. You can almost enter into a good picture. Now, a bad picture, you can't do that, but a good picture has this way of helping you to gain an understanding of what that picture is all about. Now, if I asked you, show me a picture of basketball, what would you do? Well, you know, there's, there's ball, it's about this big, it's orange, it's got black stripes, and you throw it up through this horizontal hoop, it's got a net hanging down and a rectangular backboard on the back. Does that adequately describe basketball? Some of you non-athletic people might think so. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good to me, Right? But for most of us, we'd say, no, no, to get, to get a picture of basketball, we have to have a shot of a game. Where you've got the defense, they're down guarding, maybe turning, kind of positioning themselves for a rebound. You've got the offense, and you can kind of tell they're in the middle of working this play. Maybe there's this pass. Somebody's coming up for a jump shot. You've got the sort of coaches in the background yelling, right, a crowd on their feet cheering. That gives you a picture of what the game of basketball is all about. Now, what if I said, you know, show me a picture of music? Well, you go to the jock, and he might say, well, you know, I got this stick. It's got like a ball on this end. And it's got like a flag on this. And they got things like staffs, but they're not made of wood or a group of employees. You got bars, but they're not iron or chocolate. You got measures that tell time and not distance. Uh, you know, uh, what else? Uh, every good boy does fine on the line in space face. I, I don't know. But does that describe what music's all about? I mean, how would you picture music? Maybe, maybe somebody sitting at a piano, got to have eyes closed, kind of swaying back and forth so you can tell they're really getting into it. Maybe you have people that are kind of dancing around, people singing along. Got some, some guy over here with electric guitar and he's got his rocker face going. You know, I mean, is that how we picture music? It's at least better. But what if I asked you to picture, show me a picture of a Christian? Show me what a Christian looks like in a snapshot. How would you do that? Maybe hold up a picture of, of Billy Graham preaching, right? This is what it looks like. Or maybe you've got somebody praying, and of course they've got to be praying next to a cross so that we know that we're, he's praying to, to Christ and not to something else. Maybe you have a picture of a, of a, of a, of a girl 
reading a Bible and it's got Holy Bible clearly written there so that we know she's not reading the Quran or she's not like just kind of cramming for an exam or something like that. Maybe show a picture of people walking into a building and that building has a steeple on it because we got to know that it's a church, right? Well, well, what about those people on, you know, throughout the world that, that don't share our architecture? Our building doesn't even have a steeple. What about those people that don't even meet in buildings? What do you do about those church buildings that have been converted into nightclubs? Is that what pictures it? Maybe you show a picture of a missionary passing out a tract. Maybe you show a baptism. Maybe you show the Lord's Supper. I mean, how do you picture what a Christian looks like? I mean, how do you picture the distinguishing marks of, of the Word of God and the Spirit of God that is distinct from other religious observances? Last time we were together in, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41, we identified three distinguishing marks of the Word and Spirit in the lives of true Christians. There was a conviction of sin, there was repentance, this turning away from sin and turning to Christ in faith, and there was a commitment, a resolve, a dedication, a devotion to walking in obedience to Christ. These are the distinguishing marks of the Word and Spirit. These help us to display what it means to be a Christian. But how do you picture that? I mean, how do you display that? How do you make that evident? How do you demonstrate that all by yourself? I'd say the truth is that you cannot. You cannot devote yourself. You cannot fully display the marks of the Word and Spirit on your own. Just like a guy shooting hoops does not adequately give you a picture of the game of basketball or someone sitting at an instrument does not adequately give you a picture of what music looks like, at least not as well as things like orchestras or bands or choirs or people dancing or the, the congregation singing along. You see, the picture becomes clearer when you include a congregation. And this morning, from Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47, we're going to look at the congregational aspects of the distinguishing marks of the Word and Spirit that clearly display the effect of the gospel in our lives. And on what I pray that we would all come to picture not just to, to look upon a page and shake our heads yes or begin to imagine in our minds what that looks like, but to actually picture as a body what that looks like is that receiving the word in the power of the Spirit results in devotion to the church that makes the gospel visible. Receiving the word in the power of the Holy Spirit results in devotion to the church that makes the gospel visible. And so if you would, please turn your attention with me to the text, Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. Again, page 911. It says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. 
They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the distinguishing mark of the Word and Spirit in the lives of believers, in the lives of true Christians that we see from this text that clearly evidence that they have received the Word and Spirit is that they devote themselves to the church. And in devoting themselves to the church, it makes the gospel visible. And so what we have here is devotion. And this devotion has four commitments. We can see those commitments right there in verse 42, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And the effect, the fruit of that, that what God does, now this is not what the church can do, but this is what God does. There's three things that this does among those who are not believers. That all came upon every soul, there's fear, there's favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Fear, favor, and faith. And so as we move forward, just to let you kind of know where we're going, we've got two points. The first one has four subpoints. The second one has three subpoints. But just to forewarn you, I'm going to spend almost all of my time in that first point. Okay? And so in addition to the conviction of sin, Repentance and faith and a commitment to walk in obedience to Christ, a fourth distinguishing mark of the Word and Spirit is devotion to the church. Now, can anything be less appealing to our natural inclinations than what I just described to you? Now, wait a minute. You're saying this is what it looks like. These are the distinguishing marks of the Word and Spirit, that there's conviction of sin, there's repentance and faith, there's a commitment to walk in obedience to Christ and devotion to the church. Just shoot me now. Is there anything that works more, that goes against my, my natural inclination, my, my internal desires? I mean, I, I want to feel good about myself. I don't want to experience conviction of sin. I want to do everything right. I want to succeed at everything that I put my hands to. I want to be self-sufficient on my own. I don't want to have to repent and believe. <laughs> I, I, I want to go where my heart leads me to go. I want to do what my heart leads me to do whenever it leads me to do it. But you're asking me to commit myself to doing Christ's will? Now, I want people to devote themselves to me. I want them to follow me. I want them to look favorably upon me. But you're asking me to devote myself to others? Forget about it. I mean, give me a version of Christ that will make me feel good about myself, that will make me just think much of myself, that, that doesn't really ask anything of me, and I might buy it, but, but you're talking about conviction, you're talking about repentance, you're talking about faith, you're talking about commitment, you're talking about obedience, you're talking about the church. No thanks. Friends, this is how we know that these are the distinguishing marks of the Word and Spirit because they are so unnatural that they are supernatural. Nobody naturally signs up for this. 
only those who've received the Word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. The effect of the Word, the effect of the Holy Spirit is devotion. Verse 41 says that those who received Peter's sermon, those who received God's word, those who received the Holy Spirit, they were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. They were added to what? They were added to the church. And what did the church do? Verse 42, the church devoted themselves. They persisted in. They were faithful to They committed themselves. They busied themselves with it. They held fast to. They continued to persevere in. They were devoted to the church. And how do I know that he is speaking of the church? I mean, can't they just be devoted to Christ and that be enough? Well, it's devoted to the church. I know this because of the four things that he mentions about it. That they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Can you honestly do that apart from the church? I would say no. And what we see here is that this devotion is both formal and informal, structured and just organic. It is corporate as the whole church gathers together, but also it's present in smaller pockets and in smaller groups, in homes, as, as family units, and even as individuals. It is both public and private because they met in public places and they met in private places. And it is not just the responsibility of the leaders, but every single individual because each and every one of them devoted themselves. And so, let's get rid of this idea right now. They can say, well, you know what? That's okay for you, Chet. That's okay for the the elders. That's okay for those community group leader guys that you were talking about. That's okay for some of the members, but that's not okay for me. Because you cannot truly be devoted to Christ and not be devoted to his bride. And being devoted to his bride means being devoted at least to these four things. And if you find yourself, just even right now, internally, just kind of pushing back, unwilling to devote yourself to these four things, I have to ask you, what are you really devoted to? And friends, if you take an honest look at that, what does that say about your devotion to Christ? These are going to be challenging words for all of us. The truth is, this passage is challenging. It's going to call us all to more, myself included. Okay? So as we move forward, I want to be really, really clear here. It's not Chet coming down on you. It's Chet is with you and saying, guys, let's, let's devote ourselves to these things. Okay? Now what we see here in, is that these people received the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, and they devoted themselves first and foremost to the apostles' teaching. 
And this has to come first because everything else, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers, it's all dependent, it's all formed, it's all motivated and drawn from that very first thing, the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were hungry for it. It was their bread. It was their drink. The apostles did not have to hunt them down to wonder where they were Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, wondering whether or not they were even investing themselves with other people in the Word of God. They didn't have to chase them down. They were devoted to it. They were there. They were hungry. They were eager for the Word of God. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They did it. It wasn't as though the apostles were devoted to the apostles' teaching, but they were all devoted to the apostles' teaching. And friends, don't, don't dismiss this away as saying, well, that's just because they're brand new believers. Because, you know, when people come to Christ, they get all excited, they get all eager, they want to know everything that they can know, but over time, they kind of like get the fundamentals down, and then pretty soon, yeah, it's just kind of moving on to other things. Well, friends, that's not the point at all. And how do I know that? Where do you see that anywhere else in Scripture? Where do you see the fact that it's like, okay, brand new believers, get them the fundamentals, and then they kind of move on with life and do other things, kind of move beyond the apostles' teaching? Well, you see it in two places. You see it among false teachers, and you see it among those who walk away from the faith. That's where you see it in Scripture. Everyone else is called, as local congregations, to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching to help one another grow to maturity in Christ in this one faith together. Together, as local congregations, they are called to contend for the one faith that was delivered once for all to the saints together. As a church, they are all called to obey all the Christ commanded together. They're to guard the gospel together. They're to share the gospel together. To bear witness to the gospel together. We don't move away from it. And so this church that devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching is a learning church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is their doctrine. Friends, being filled with the Holy Spirit is not anti-intellectual. You'll see veins of Christianity that would say that. Well, that's doctrine, but we are led by the Spirit. As if those are sort of separate things. Well, friends, the Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth who authored the very Word of God, who then entrusted that good news to apostles, who then would go from place to place appointing elders, who then were given the task to entrust these things to faithful men who would be able to teach others also. And what on earth do you think that they're teaching them? doctrine, truth, the one faith. We don't separate the Word from the Spirit. They were eager to know all that they can know of doctrine because doctrine is from the Holy Spirit. 
And so what did they do to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching? Well, they just read a bunch of books, right? That's all they needed. Just, just got some books and they read a lot of books. Or, or they just got, to, got in their little quiet place with just them and their Bibles. Just me and Jesus. That's all I really need. Just get my quiet little place. I got the Word. I got the Spirit. And I don't need anybody else. Or maybe, maybe they went and they got their, their commentaries. They went up onto their ivory towers so that they could look critically upon the Word of God. Or, or better yet, they went to seminaries or they went to Ivy League schools so they could become masters over the apostles' teaching to then look down upon it and to be able to tell us with all, all wisdom and all, all knowledge all 2,000 years later what is right and what is wrong, what is truth and what is error, where Jesus and the apostles and the prophets went wrong and why we should be skeptical to believe. As if 2,000 years separation from the apostles' teaching makes us wiser. Now, what did they do? They devoted themselves together with the church to the teaching of the leaders that Christ had given them. Christ appointed the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So they devoted themselves to the teaching of their leaders. They loved listening to preaching. And how do I know that they loved listening to preaching? Because that's how most, if not all, of the apostles taught. At least that's what we're given indication of in, throughout the book of Acts. Teaching and preaching that was not only rich in doctrine, but also in ethical instruction, in application. That word teaching that we see there, the apostles' teaching, it's broader than the word doctrine, okay? Those are related words. They have a little bit different endings. Doctrine looks like this. This word teaching here is broader. It includes doctrine, but it also includes ethical or moral instruction. What to do, how to apply this to their life. And so what that shows us is that they submitted themselves to the instruction of their leaders, there was submission to their spiritual authorities as they sought to apply the Word of God to their lives. They weren't okay just to hear it occasionally for an hour on Sunday morning when they just so happened to make their way and kind of be there, but they devoted themselves to it. They're seeking to apply it to their lives. They wanted to know God's Word so that they could live God's Word. They wanted to know doctrine so that they could live doctrine. They wanted to adorn, as it says in the pastoral epistles, the doctrine of God. So they devoted themselves to it. Friends, that kind of devotion to God's Word requires consistent commitment to the church. It requires doctrine. It requires leaders and authority. It requires submission. It requires commitment to preaching and teaching. It requires application. And that requires more than Sunday morning. But as it says in verse 46, day by day at the temple or at the synagogue or the portico or wherever else the whole church had gathered together and also in homes, publicly and privately, formally and informally, in homes and on the streets for the edification of the church and for the evangelization of the lost, 
they all devoted themselves to learning and to living in light of the apostles' teaching. And it says that awe came upon every soul. Friends, you will not stand in awe of what you do not know. You will not stand in awe of what you do not have spiritual eyes to see. You will not stand in awe of what you do not give your attention, your heart, your mind, your soul, your energy to. You will not stand in awe of what you refuse to obey and to apply to your lives. And everything else that we see in this text, true fellowship, true breaking of bread, true prayer, true praise, it all comes from a true devotion to the apostles' teaching. You remove devotion to the apostles' teaching and all you have left are cheap worldly imitations. So that's why it comes first. But not only were they devoted to the apostles' teaching, they were also devoted to the fellowship. Now notice the word the there. That's pretty significant. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. Not they devoted themselves to an idea or a version of fellowship with anyone as I want to define it in a way that is personally palatable and most comfortable to me, but they devoted themselves to the fellowship. It's a, it's a definite, clearly defined body. You see, when we're brought into fellowship with Christ, as the Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see, that we respond in faith and obedience to Christ, we are brought into fellowship with Him. But we, in doing that, in that fellowship that we have with Christ, we are also brought into fellowship with the church. Friends, think of it, this word fellowship, like marriage or like family. Why do I say that? Well, because the Scripture calls the church the household of God and the very bride of Christ. And being devoted to that fellowship means devote, being devoted to commi or committed to, to caring and sharing, to holding all things in common with that body. Now that doesn't mean that everyone is best friends or that we all have common interests or common personalities or common life experiences or common personal musical preferences and so on. It means that they are devoted to sharing their lives together, to loving and caring for one another as a body. And so it's relational, right? They, they share the gospel with each other. They share truth. They share wisdom. They share meals. They share space. They share time. They share other resources with each other. But friends, that doesn't mean that they spend every single minute of every single day together or that they would call each other BFFs. I mean, let's keep in mind, verse 41 tells us that the church is over 3,000 people. We already know from chapter 1 that there were at least 120 people there were believers before that, and only 12 apostles. Okay, so what fellowship is not is that that 3,199 people all go over to hang out at, at, at Pastor Peter's house after their Sunday worship gathering. That that's not fellowship. That they had to all be together and all doing that. And it, it wasn't as though Peter was a bad pastor. If he didn't 
have all 3,199 in his home or, or send them birthday cards or, or was at the hospital every time they had to have a mole removed. The point of fellowship was not that they were sharing meals or conversations together either. Right? If that's the case, then what you just did at your work Christmas party is fellowship. And if that's the case, then, then what's, what, what's the difference between the fellowship that, that we have as Christians and that of, that we have with the world? Well, First John tells us that ought to be a lot. If anything that you do can, be, can experience apart from Christ, then that is not what fellowship is. So sure, true fellowship is relational, but we don't have fellowship just because we hang out or we talk or we text or we eat meals together. Fellowship is partnership in Christ. It is active, humble, sacrificial participation with His body. Fellowship is cooperation in the mission of Christ. It is contributing to the needs of others for their good and not simply seeking my own. Fellowship requires humility. It requires that we prefer others and that we actively work to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Fellowship requires covenant-keeping love. But fellowship isn't only that we share our lives together. It's also that we share our resources, our time, our energy, our finances, our goods. Fellowship means sharing in common, or to put it in a single word, contribution. Not that they contribute to me, but I am coming to contribute to them. One of the clearest displays of fellowship is giving. God has given me everything. He's given me my life, my breath, my everything. Everything that I have is from Him. I have nothing apart from Him. It all belongs to Him, and you belong to Him. And so what I have is yours. When Christ enters into our hearts, a miracle happens. He changes us from saying the word mine to His. I mean, think about this. Think about your toddlers, right? Some of the very first words that they learn, no and mine. Isn't that really just kind of like, isn't that the essence of sin nature, right? That we just say no and mine. But when Christ transforms our hearts, we go from saying no and mine to yes and his. God gave his one and only son to redeem sinners who have taken all of the gifts that he has given us and thrown them back in his face. And in doing that, he transforms selfish takers into cheerful, thankful, sacrificial givers. And here's what we see them doing in verse 44. All who believed were together and they had all things in common. And that's a play off of that word fellowship, common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, a couple of clarifications here. This is not condoning communism. Not saying communism is the form of government that we should practice. All, right? all of their giving was voluntary. 
You skip forward to Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. You realize there that the property belonged to them, and even the, the, the proceeds from the sale of the property belonged to them. They weren't judged because they held a portion back. They were judged because they lied and said that they'd given everything when they had not. Even here in this, this text, in verse 46, we see that they continued to break bread in homes. Well, how do you break bread in homes if you've given all of your stuff away? including your homes. So that's not what it means. It is sacrificial, voluntary giving that contributes to the needs of others. It's not forced governmental communism. It's also important to point out that this giving and this mercy ministry is directed primarily to the body of believers. It says that all who believed were together All who believed had all things in common. Believers were selling their possessions and distributing to all within the church as any had need. And it's not that they didn't seek to meet the needs of those who were outside the church, but their primary focus was to those who were within the church, the needs that were there and apparent within the church. We see this played out in Acts chapter 6 with the distribution of the widows. These were all Christians, right? You've got a dispute rose up between the, the Hellenist Christians and the Jewish Christians because the Hellenist Christians were being neglected in the daily distribution. And who did they go to? They went to the apostles. So you got Christians and Christians going to Christians. Whereas Paul says in in Galatians chapter 6, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are the household of faith. And so our sacrificial giving is directed first and foremost to the needs of the household of faith. Now, we we seek opportunity to do do good to everyone as that opportunity presents itself, both formally and informally, corporately and individually. But the way to think about this is, is not that as we're walking by and we see a cup that we throw money in it and we move on. Or that we know that there's a vague idea of a need out here within our community. And so what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to raise some money over here. We're just going to throw it at it and just kind of move on. That's not the idea anyway. That opportunity as it presents itself is always within the context of a relationship. You see a need that's presented as you come into contact, as your life, the sphere of your life intersects with someone else. You see that need and you seek to meet it. Right? It doesn't have to come from the church benevolence fund. It could just come from my own pocket because I have this relationship. I have this investment from somebody else. Though it could come from the church benevolence fund. That's okay. But it doesn't have to look just one way. we got to think differently. But here's how we should think about it. Giving in the context of relationships. Don't just think that I've been benevolent because I've thrown a couple of dollars in a can. It's meant to be in the context of relationship. I'm going to love that person. I'm going to invest in that person. And so true fellowship, it requires sharing our lives. It requires sharing our resources, but it also includes that we share our blessings and our burdens. We share the intimate details of our lives with others, good things and bad things. I mean, our lives are filled with joys and sorrows, blessings and curses, pleasures and pains, sanctification and sin, and we were meant to share in those together, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep. We are to comfort, 
to encourage, to admonish, to edify, and to exhort. Galatians 6 tells us, brothers and sisters, you who are spiritual, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping careful watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, but bear in one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So friends, fellowship is more than casually, comfortably, sort of safely, vaguely hanging out with friends, sharing food together. It's sacrificing yourself for the good of others. It's sharing your life. It's giving your stuff. It's bearing your soul. And it's carrying the burdens of others. Now I'm convinced that there's a part of every single one of us that wants fellowship. But we don't want to give in order to get it. We want to say, you know what, that's the leader's responsibility, or that's the responsibility of those members of the church, but that's not mine. They are there to serve and invest in me. They are there to share their lives with me, but I, but I don't got to share my life with, with them. I, I, don't want, I want them to give their time and their energy and their money and their resources to me, but I don't want to make sacrifices with any of mine. And in my pride, I don't want to share my blessings and my burdens with others. I don't, I don't want to let them in in that way. I don't want them to, to see underneath. And maybe it's because I love my sin and, you know, I, I don't want them to, to perform surgery upon my heart. And quite honestly, I, I'm not really interested in getting my hands bloody to operate on theirs. Or maybe... When I have that burden that happens to be just too big for me to handle, I can't possibly do it on my own, right? I'll give it to them. I want them to take it from me, but I don't want to enter into the mess of other people's lives. I'm not willing to shoulder their burdens for them. Let's just pay a pastor and tell him that's his responsibility. Well, friends, that's, that's not devoting yourself to the fellowship. And so if you happen to be here and you're like, you know what, I really don't feel like I have fellowship, there's probably good reason for that. It's no wonder that you feel as though you don't have fellowship if you're not invested in the life of the body. Fellowship requires investment. Fellowship requires commitment. Fellowship requires humility. Fellowship requires transparency. Fellowship requires Vulnerability, fellowship requires sacrificial giving. And again, not everyone has to be involved for you to have true fellowship. Right? It's not as though one person is there weeping and the only way to truly experience fellowship is if the other 3,199 were there on the couch weeping too. But yet we kind of treat it this way. Where's the church if not everybody's right there all gathered together? It doesn't mean that there's not care and concern and Christ-like love if somebody in the body is carrying that burden with them. Because quite honestly, in a healthy church where we are truly living in fellowship, LTGs or community groups or other brothers and sisters in Christ are sharing lives so well together that the burdens never actually have to work their way all the way up to the elders' shoulders. 
Instead, the leaders hear word and they rejoice over the fact that the congregation has been equipped to do the work of ministry and is walking in fellowship with that struggling brother or sister. That's the gauge by which we know whether or not we truly have fellowship, whether we're truly devoting ourselves to fellowship. When you have real brothers and sisters that are committed to walking with you. Again, it doesn't have to be everybody. It doesn't have to be Caleb as opposed to Travis or opposed to Stephen or opposed to AJ or whoever. Sometimes we do that. Oh, it's not Chet. That's not good enough. Really? Because what I see in this text is that they devoted themselves to the fellowship. They didn't require Peter. When you come here on Sunday morning or to your life transformation group, to your community group, or any time you know that brothers and sisters from this body are gathered together, do you come ready to give your life? Do you come ready to give your resources, your blessings, and your burdens to others? Do you come eager to share in life, eager to partner, eager to participate, eager to contribute generously to the life of this fellowship, whether corporately or in small groups. When you came here this morning, is that what you had in mind? Or do you come just because that's my duty? I'm supposed to. Got to be a good person. This is what good people do. Or do you come here to receive? Come here to take and offer nothing to those who all around you have needs. Friends, that's not fellowship. In devoting ourselves to fellowship, we are devoting ourselves to the good of the members of this body. And it takes the whole body with each part working properly to make the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so if you see a particular need within this congregation, you say, oh, you know what, Redeemer Church, you know, there's got some things going on that's really great, but this one's kind of weaker than that one. You need to ask yourself the question, how can I help? How can I contribute to that? In addition to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, We also see that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Again, this is both formal and informal, corporate and in more intimate connotations. The the breaking of bread refers to both the participation in the Lord's Supper and in hospitality. Well, how do we know it's the, the Lord's Supper? Well, when you look at the gospel accounts of the Last Supper, when you look at Acts chapter 20, verse 7, when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11, the breaking of bread is clearly an indication of the Lord's Supper. When the entire congregation gathers together to commemorate Christ's sacrifice for sin through the bread and cup. Friends, I hope you understand just how significant the Lord's Supper is for the life of a body. I know we, we're, we live in a culture that has really dumbed it down and made it just a thing that we do. But quite honestly, it's huge. The Lord's Supper is a time for where we come together as a body 
as one to remember and to visibly and tangibly display what Christ has done for us. It's an opportunity for us to rejoice in and reaffirm our communion, not just between me and God, but with each other. It's not an individual act, it's a corporate act. It reminds us that through Christ's death for sin and through His resurrection from the dead, we have been united to Christ. And because we have been united to Christ, we have been united to each other. It's a demonstration of our devotion to Christ and to His church until He comes again. Which is why the Lord's Supper is for believers who have made their faith known through their public profession and baptism. And to be completely honest with you, it is meant for those who have united themselves and are members of good standing in a local church. That's how you gain full expression of what the Lord's Supper is. Is when we are committed to communion to God and to each other. We're breaking bread together. But in addition to the Lord's Supper, we also see there in verse 46 that they broke bread in homes, receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. And this doesn't mean that they were taking the Lord's Supper when they met together to share a meal, but that they were showing hospitality. Not that, now, again, Got to point out, got to make it fully clear, these were not the homes of the apostles. And how do we know that? Because Peter's home was back in Galilee and they're in Jerusalem. So these are homes of the members of the congregation. Not that Peter shouldn't open up his home to people within the church, but it's like, if, if that's the mindset, and I know that it is, that it's only fellowship, it's only hospitality if Chet has people over for dinner. Why haven't I been invited over to Chet's house? I'm like, well, why haven't I been invited over to your house? I'm just saying, I like to eat. (laughs) I will be glad and generous within my heart. So anyway, no, church leaders are often called out of their homes to go and deal with pastoral issues. What we see here is the church members gathering together, sharing this meal in home, and just what a great blessing it can be to, to know that as, as they're seeking to meet the needs of others, that this is a way that I can seek to meet their needs. And, and friends, this is something that anyone and everyone in this church can do. It doesn't matter how old you are or what your life stage is. We can all open our homes and welcome people in to share food together. You college students who live in the dorms, you're not exempt from this. What's to say that you can't invite a family with kids into your dorm room, have them sit on your bed, and serve them ramen noodles, if that's all you know how to cook? What's to say? Right? Now, your, your dorm mates, they may look at you like you're crazy for about two seconds, but then they're going to think, huh, how is it that they have that kind of relationship with them. That they actually bring them into their dorm. That, that's actually, it's weird, but it's, it's, it's a cool weird. That they can share life together that way. Guys, that leads to favor 
with all the people. And quite honestly, if you want to be, if you want your life to be a witness to your unbelieving classmates and, and dorm mates, what a great opportunity. Because you're, you're helping them to see through the fellowship of the church, and you do that by bringing the church to them. Friends, we can do that in our workplaces. We can do that in our neighborhoods. Don't think about fellowship in terms of very, very particular places. There's, this is something that we can all do. You know, a great example of this, I, I, was, I was being sincere when I said that I was going to use them as an illustration. A great example of this are the Mosiers. That, you know, regularly, almost every single Sunday, they have people into their home after our worship gathering and sharing meals with them. And it's such a blessing as a pastor to know that the church is doing that, to see them doing that time and time again, to take just, I, we got to eat, let's eat and invest in people. And I, I know that many of you, you go out and you, you eat afterwards, and that's great. You keep doing that. If that's what you got, then that's what you got. That's great. But, but just consider this. There's something significant about actually going the extra step to welcoming people into your home and preparing a meal for them that communicates love and care and concern. It's an opportunity just to bless, an opportunity to love, and it opens that hand of fellowship to them. I'd encourage each and every one of you to think about ways that you can get into a better routine, whatever that is. Again, it's going to look different for everybody. There's no standard here, but just how can we get into a better routine of showing hospitality? It's a wonderful way that we can strive to build up the body as we tangibly display devotion to the church while receiving our food with glad and generous hearts. And then a fourth commitment that we see these early believers doing themselves is that they devoted themselves to the prayers. Now again, notice the definite article. It says, the prayers. Now certainly they prayed at random times and places as the Spirit led them uh, and they made their extemporaneous requests known to God. But I think that one of the biggest reasons why we don't pray is because we do not use the helps that God has given us. These believers were day by day, were attending the temple prayers, these formal, corporate, liturgical, set prayers from Scripture as God had previously prescribed for the people of God to pray. And this passage looks upon this commendably, right? This is devotion to the prayers. And yet, in our, in our day and age, we have this tendency to kind of just dismiss that and disregard that as saying that's, that's you know, that's just disingenuous. We, we somehow become convinced that unless I can offer a unique, articulate, lengthy, spirit-unctioned diatribe that goes on and on and on and can actually lead other people to tears that I'm somehow not praying. I'm not devoting myself to prayer. But here we see them praying. They, they would have been praying hymns. They would have been praying scripture, praying formal, structured, liturgical prayers. And friends, we know that they don't have to be long because Jesus himself said, hey, pray this way. And the Lord's prayer like takes seconds to pray. Why not use Scripture 
or hymns or the prayers that we see in Scripture to lead and direct us? Why not utilize books like The Valley of Vision or books of common prayers to direct and stir up thoughts of our own to God? You know, one of the best tools that has helped me in prayer is a little book called Face to Face, Praying the Scriptures for Intimate Worship by Kenneth Boa. It's fantastic. It, it, every day it gives you a, a set of passages and then it gives suggestions for how you can pray those passages. It doesn't take that long to do it, but it, it's a wonderful, wonderful tool. I think another reason why we don't pray is that we don't take time to pray together. We don't invest in each other in that way. It seems, I don't know, a little strange in our day and age to see people praying together. We're, we're not intentional to pray with and for each other. Which is why after the new year, it's my intention to, to begin to just have certain times where I'm here to pray. And anybody who wants to come can come along. I'll tell you right now, I'm thinking uh, initially at this point, 6.30 Tuesday morning. Going to be gathered here to pray. And I would encourage you to come and participate in that. Or maybe if you can't make up that time, maybe a different time. Maybe you've got the lunch hour and you're like, hey, I can come during the lunch hour on this day and let's get pockets together. So even if we don't have a prayer service where the whole church is gathered together to pray, we can still be more intentional to pray with and for each other. We can still devote ourselves to prayer. But you know, probably the the greatest reason why we don't pray is because we are self-reliant and self-dependent. We believe that we are self-sufficient. But friends, that's just evidence that we trust in ourselves more than we trust in God. Prayer is one of the greatest ways that we can show devotion to Christ and to the church and is the best way that we can foster communion with both God and each other. And so let's devote ourselves to prayer. Now notice, Luke didn't say anything about how they devoted themselves to singing. Did you notice that? Because no no doubt they sung. right? These prayers that they were praying were based upon hymns. They could have sung those, Right? But it doesn't, he, he makes no mention of it. I mean, we see down there in verse 47 that praising God was the fruit, the effect of the other four commitments. Praising God is the effect of devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And friends, this is significant for us to consider. Because in the American church today, we devote ourselves to singing. We spend billions and billions of dollars on sound systems and lighting and music and video displays and instrumentation, and we hire professional musicians to come in and play our music in addition to those that we pay to lead us in singing because that's what we've got to do in order to devote ourselves to singing. But what we're really doing is we've begun to devote ourselves to the worship of worship. We've began to devote ourselves to the idea of singing. And how do I know that? The lack of the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Again, it's not that we shouldn't seek to, to play and to sing with excellence. 
not what I'm saying. But many have begun to think that this production is a necessity for true devotion. That unless we spend all of this money and have all of this great stuff, we can't, I can't really worship in that environment. I mean, Caleb gets up here with his guitar, and sometimes it's just him and his guitar, and I can hear, I can hear him singing next to me, and, and he's out of key. I can't worship God like this. He plays too slow. Where are all of the tambourines and stuff? Why aren't people jumping and dancing and throwing their hands in the air? Again, we've made these things a necessity when they're not. Right? Devotion to like singing is the, the product of true devotion. Devotion leads to singing. Devotion to the apostles' teaching resulted in praise. Devotion to the fellowship resulted in praise. Devotion to the breaking of bread resulted in praise. And devotion to the prayers resulted in praise. Friends, gathering a crowd together to sing songs is no indication of devotion. Even if those songs make mention of God. Closing your eyes and raising your hands is no evidence that you have truly received the Word of God. Feeling excited or moved by the music is no indication of the Spirit of God. Because the same thing happens in concerts week after week after week after week after week. But do you know what a true indication of the Word and Spirit is in the lives of believers? Devotion to the church that is expressed in day-by-day commitment to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. These are commitments that each and every one of us can grow in. We can all step up and participate in these things if we have received the word and the power of the Holy Spirit. So friends, let's devote ourselves to them. Now that's the bulk of it, right? We could walk away right now, be just fine. But I need to very briefly mention a second point, which is the effects, the the divine fruit of this devotion. These are things that we cannot do in and of ourselves, but we see this is a byproduct of that devotion. when When we display those distinguishing marks of the Word and Spirit, this is what the Lord does. And so we need to give attention to it. And so our devotion to the church, second, makes the gospel visible. In devoting ourselves to the church, we help show the world who is and who is not a Christian. In devoting ourselves to the church, we show that the gospel has the power to unite people that have absolutely nothing in common but Christ, and that means everything. 
That the gospel has the power to unite. The gospel has the power to transform. The gospel has the power to change. The gospel has the, the power to enable and equip us for the mission of the gospel. That the gospel has the power to bring about commitment to walk in obedience in new and profound and amazing ways that the world cannot see and cannot explain on its own. In short, it makes the gospel visible. And this visible gospel results in, very, in three very distinct God-given fruits. Fruits that we cannot produce, only God can. There's a fear of God, favor among men, and day by day, people were coming to faith. Verse 43 tells us that awe, and that's the word fear. Fear came upon every soul. Not just the souls within the church, but upon every single soul. And some could say, well, you know, that's due to the fact that the, the apostles were doing all of these signs and wonders, because it follows right after that. But I think that there's reason why Luke put it there, that it follows on the heels of verse 42, as the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. What they're seeing is they're looking in from the outside and they're saying, you know what? This is a church that takes the word of God seriously. This is, this is a church that, that takes meeting the needs and caring for its members seriously. This is a church that, that takes the breaking of bread, whether at the Lord's table or the kitchen table, seriously. This is a church that takes prayer Seriously. And in seeing that, they begin to take God seriously. There's a reverence. They began to see something more. There was a fear of the Lord. They saw their good deeds and they gave glory to our Father who is in heaven. And even if they did not join with them, they still esteemed them highly because they feared the Lord. Their love for God and for each other was attractive. They gave praise to God in verse 47, and we see that God gave them favor with all the people. Now, all doesn't mean all, because we know that it didn't include the religious leaders in Jerusalem, okay? But what we see here is that this kind of radical, sacrificial love drew outsiders to the gospel. They liked what they were seeing. Not only were they beginning to take God seriously, but this devotion to Christ and to his church was appealing as they respected them for how they lived out the Christian life together. When people looked on them, they did so favorably. Huh. I'm glad they're here. I'm glad they're doing that, even if they don't join in. You know, when people look at your faith, and when they look at this church, do they find something that they long for? Truth, love, family, change, hope, grace? Do our neighbors think that we contribute something to this community? That our neighborhood is actually better off for us being here than not? Friends, let's pray that that would be so. That God would grant us favor with all the people. 
And in verse 47, we see that the Lord, not the church, but the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Because you and I, we, we can't change hearts. Only God can. But as we devote ourselves to the word and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, that strengthens and empowers us in the Holy Spirit, and that compels us outward to bear witness to the mission of Christ to others. It empowers us to take the good news and share it with them. And where there is a growing sense of fear and favor, there will also be faith. God will continue to add to this number those who are being saved. Friends, a devoted church is a growing church. A growing church is an evangelistic church. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And how will they hear? A devoted church is a going church. Friends, let's pray that as we devote ourselves to the word the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers, that God would add to this number day by day those who are being saved. This is a true picture of the church. It's not a perfect picture. We're going to go on and continue to read through Acts. We're going to realize they're far from perfect, but it is a faithful picture. This is a picture of a church that has its priorities straight. A picture of a church that is centered on Christ. A picture that is worthy of emulation. And they had received the word and the power of the Holy Spirit, and they were devoting themselves to the things that Christ himself devoted his own life to. And through that, God used it mightily. And so receiving the word and the power of the Holy Spirit results in devotion to the church that makes the gospel visible. Let's pray that that would be so among us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and how it centers us, shapes us, transforms us, gives us direction for our lives. Father, we know that in, in so many ways, we need to grow. So many ways, we look at this, we're just like, yeah, I realize that, that there's ways that we could all become more devoted to these things. But Lord, I pray that we would not neglect to see where there has been growth and where you are doing a work even right now among us to lead us to a deeper devotion to Christ. God, I, I pray that our hearts would be as yours, that we would delight in the things that you delight in, that we would rejoice in what we've been given, and out of the overflow, the abundance of praise and, and hope and life, it would lead to a greater devotion that makes the gospel visible so that fear would fall upon every soul, so that favor would be given 
among our neighbors and our co-workers and our family and this neighborhood and community throughout the world and that you would add to this number day by day those who are being saved. Father, we do thank you for your word. I pray that we would love it and find it to be our food and our drink. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.